Now, what a great hymn to sing before we begin this, as it is really, I don't have to preach, I could just exposit that hymn to you, and it would explain much of what we are speaking of in Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and turn with me back to Romans chapter 3. I'll read the whole section. We began uh, considering chapter 3, verse 21 through the end last week, and we didn't finish it because it's just too rich. But we'll read 21 through the end, and then we'll begin to to reflect on it again together. So, uh, you know what, I'm going to read, as I always do, from the ESV, because it's what I have memorized, so I apologize for that, and then we'll pop back and forth between the ESV and the NASB as my notes take me, which is scary. Fortunately, I don't have very many notes, so... But now, verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Pray with me. Father, I ask as we consider costly nature of your grace this morning, that our hearts would be warmed and encouraged by the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that our pride would be silenced and our eyes turned to Christ afresh. May his name be magnified in our meditation and reflection on his work for his people. We pray it by the power of your spirit and in his name, amen. Now, I told you last week that our goal through Romans has been to move somewhat quickly, about half a chapter a week, which I think is a really good pace, but that it seemed wise here to somewhat hit a little bit of a a speed bump and slow down and consider this section, which is so much the heart of Paul's argument. In fact, you've already noticed that everything leading up to this has, has been preparatory for this, but now this big change, this sea change in human existence that he begins to explain beginning in verse 21. And I've told you that much of what he says in these verses is also introductory of everything he's going to say in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And so this is kind of the, the junction, the train yard, where all the lines come together and then flow back out again in this complex argument that is the book of Romans. It is the heart of his argument because it is the heart of God's righteousness revealed for his people. And we said last week that God's righteousness is both his attribute, it's something that God is, but it's also something that he does. It's something that we experience 
grace. It's his saving power for his people. And that saving power for his people is expressed in a verdict. It's expressed in legal language. It's expressed as justification or righteousness applied to us in legal terms by the means of faith in Jesus Christ. And we said that that faith levels the playing field, that there's no distinction in how God's righteousness is applied to his people because the people who are saved are three things all simultaneously. They are people who have sinned, who have fallen short of the glory of God, and who are justified by his grace. There's those people who confess that they are in that category of having sinned, of being uh, short of the glory of God, are those and only those who can be justified by his grace. And we talked briefly about the nature of justification as God's gracious work, that grace, uh, that gifts are things that great kings do to magnify their names. Grace is something that is God's unconstrained, his undriven, there's no motivation other than his own good pleasure to magnify his glorious name that drives his grace in this declaration of justification. So really, from one side of viewing this righteousness of God revealed for his people, it's shockingly free. It's shockingly low cost, right? In fact, it has to be. We talked last week about the difference, as he'll explain further in chapter 4, between wages and a gift. If something's a gift, there's nothing in it that you can say, oh yeah, but you should have given me that gift. It has to be unconstrained. And yet, from another standpoint, there is a staggering cost to God's grace. This week, we will consider the cost of God's grace as we consider the nature of redemption. So we'll consider today at length, I want to marinate, as I say to my girls sometimes when I want to study at length, I want to marinate and and just season our thinking through Paul's description of the redemption that we've received, the nature of the cost of our justification. And then as we do that, we will also consider two purposes of this redemption and several implications that Paul briefly begins to consider before we move into chapter 4. So we'll consider redemption, and then we'll consider the purposes of redemption and the implications of redemption. Verse 24, this justification, this declaration of legal righteousness that comes through his gracious gift has this means, it's redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is an, an interesting word to apply here because it has an idea of cost, of purchase. right? And I think that's Sometimes we don't tend to think in terms directly of purchase when it comes to things having to do with our salvation because we're so used to thinking in terms of legal things, right? In our minds, or at least in my mind, law courts are different from commerce, right? And there's not any mixing between prices getting paid into the, the world of law starts to sound like bribes or extortion or something like that, and you're like, well, those two things don't necessarily mix. And yet we'll see that there's actually Old Testament precedent for everything Paul mentions here. That's why he says that the law bears witness to what's coming in Christ. We'll see that there is very much an idea of purchase involved in this legal justification that we've received. 
Redemption is a word, I think, that's so important because it brings to mind the idea of substitution. You ever wondered, and, and you ought to think about this, how is it that what Jesus could do has any legal precedent for taking care of what I have done? How can you, how can you say, how could God say that my sin could be borne by another person? Right? I mean, it's a beautiful concept, but where is there any legal justification for that? Why could this be something that could be applied to me? And you know that this process, this thought of redemption, begins back at the Passover. Right? What happens at Passover when God rescues his people? Who dies? When God brings judgment on the Egyptians, who dies? Do you remember? The firstborn. The firstborn. Right? Thank you. Somebody read their Bible in Exodus. Thank you. The firstborn in all the land die except for the firstborn in Israel. Right? God saves them. He passes over them with blood. And yet, do you know that the cost of that echoes through Israel's history? Those people are now set apart. They were, they were purchased by that blood. God interceded for them, and yet now they belonged to him. And then what happens as you go into the, the wilderness wanderings, God says, okay, those, the firstborn of all the nation belong to me. We read this a while ago, so I won't take you back to all of the, uh, the texts in this. But in Leviticus, he takes then the Levites and he says, that tribe, we talked about this when we talked about Levi in uh, Genesis, that tribe is now going to belong to me in lieu of all the firstborn. And they do the math, right? They figure out, okay, here's how many Levites there are. Here's how many firstborn Israelites they have. And there's a little bit of difference. And so there's a few, too, many, too few Levites to balance out for the rest of the tribe. And God says, okay, you're going to pay a redemption tax for the rest of them. And then the Levites are going to belong to me in their, in forever and ever and ever. They're going to belong to me separately as my redemption price for the nation. They're going to be the ones that, that I keep for myself and, and we'll substitute them for the rest of the nation. And there's a legal declaration there, a legal example of substitution that the whole tribe of Levi becomes God's special purchased uh, possession. And for the rest of Israel's history, they're supposed to pay a firstborn tax to support the Levites so that they can be set aside to belong to God as his people. And so there's an idea all through the Old Testament of substitutionary redemption, where God's Purchasing power is brought to bear for his people to set aside people for himself. But there's also an idea of redemption here that would have been really current in the first century world to anybody living in Rome who was just a normal Gentile person in their church. Even if they didn't know all the things that had happened in the Old Testament, there's another aspect of redemption because this word was used in, in just normal, everyday Roman life for something that most of the people in Paul's audience would have cared a lot about, and that is the freedom of slaves. If you were a normal slave working in a Roman household, you hoped eventually, by the way, their system tended to work, to be able to save up enough money that you would be able to be free someday. But the Roman system didn't have this thing where you saved up the money, and then you paid your master, and then they gave you a receipt, and you left. No, they had a system where you went to a temple, and you said at the temple, well, I don't know which god it would be, you got to pick your god, I guess, and you go to the temple and you say, hey, I have the money, uh, and so I want to be free, and you, the god would buy you. 
you'd give the money to the temple, and then the temple would give the money on to your, your master, and the god would buy you, and you would pass into the possession of the god. Now, conveniently, those gods weren't real, and they didn't have anything to, that they wanted to do with slaves, so effectively, you were free, because you, it's, it's, it's like this. You say to the statue, hey, can I go to Florida next week? The statue says, Great, thanks, I'll go to Florida next week, right? So it's a somewhat of a legal fiction, and yet it had some protections involved in it. One of the reasons you did this, other than record keeping, was then if your master said, you know what, I think I'm going to do this again. I'm going to come back and get more money for him. The temple could say, no, 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 he belongs to the god now. Right now, it depended on whether the priests were corrupt or not, I suppose, whether they sold you back, because the god wasn't going to do anything to save you. But the receipt that you got would say something like, this person now belongs to, insert your God's name here, nobody can mess with him. He's dedicated to the service of that God. Isn't that interesting? It's a normal thing that would have existed in the Roman Empire that they would have thought of. It's, in fact, the same language that Paul borrows in other places to say that you were bought with a price. Nobody else can constrain you. Nobody else can tell you what to do. The difference is our God's real. Our God that we were bought by, that Paul picks up this language and uses, is real. And when we're dedicated to his service, and we ask him, should we do this in our lives? It's real service to him. It's real freedom and real service. So Paul picks up this amazing language of redemption. Notice the value of this redemption. This redemption is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is himself the price of our grace. We talked when we began Romans about the extraordinary heritage of Christ, that he is the one promised in the Old Testament, the descendant of David, the one who fulfills all of God's promises and purposes, and yet he's also a man. I sent you out that, I love that um, letter that I sent out on Christmas Eve about how the glory of God and the humanity of Jesus are so perfectly mixed together in the one man who is both divine and human, or as Paul would say, the one mediator between God and man that is Christ Jesus. But now there's a question. Who does this price go to? There was a, a heresy for many years in the ancient church that said, well, God paid the price of our redemption to Satan. No, God puts forward the price, but God is also the one who receives the price of redemption. God puts forward Jesus as what? As a propitiation by his blood. Now, here's another amazing word. But first, I want you to notice, who's the one who's doing the acting? I said all the way through this uh, amazing chapter that our attention should be on how God does the work at, at, at each stage of this. And God is the one who puts forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. You know how, notice how active the Father is in this. Sometimes we approach justification as this thing that God is saying, I'm wrathful and I'm angry and I don't want to save these people, but I was overcome by the work that Jesus did. No, this is something that began from the heart of our Father who together in the councils of the Trinity, puts forth his own precious son as the price of our redemption, and he puts him forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is another word that would have been really 
familiar to anybody in Paul's day. It was something that people did all the time when they had dinner. You would sit down uh, at dinner and you would pour a little bit of your coffee or your wine. They didn't have coffee, you know, that's what I would use. So you'd put your coffee or your wine and you'd pour out a little bit to the gods before you ate. Right? You'd make a little sacrifice, little offering, so that they would be pleased with you. Didn't really do anything except help the weeds grow, but it was a common theme in their minds that you would do something to make the gods happy with you, something to make them pleased with you. Like all things, it's just stealing from the truth of, of worshiping the one true God. Turn back to Genesis. I want you to see the beginning point for this. Back to Genesis 9. I'm sorry, it's Genesis 8 and uh, verse 20. Noah comes out of the ark. All the animals eat out on their way to wherever they're going to go. And Noah builds an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I'm going to flip the page, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then you get the covenant that he makes with Noah. Noah builds this altar, and his worship, not just the, the, the sacrifice on the altar, but his worship is a soothing aroma. Do you see that? That's the right picture of propitiation. Now, this is a picture of propitiation. Jesus is the true propitiation. The idea of soothing isn't just that you smell it and, ah, it satisfies your appetite. But it has the idea of satisfaction. This is so important. So important. Over and over and over as we move through Genesis, I would remind you that human justice just never satisfies. Right? We live in this incredibly broken world, and we get used to it, and we, we put our trust and hope and the fact that God's justice will come to bear someday. But human justice cannot satisfy. Think about it. Uh, last week I was down in Texas, and one of the instructors at the, the uh, flight academy had his really nice Corvette that he'd put built up back together by himself. He'd restored it, I guess is what you would say. And we have these big glass double doors. Uh, so he would walk by and peer out at his car. He always parked it right in front so he could peer at his car as he walked by. And now bear in mind, this is theoretically a secure facility. Uh, it's got guards and gates and everything. And he walked by um, the morning before I came home, and his Corvette wasn't sitting there. And he thought, huh, I must have parked somewhere else where I didn't realize it. And his buddies were like, no, no, you parked where you always parked. And he went out, and he saw his window laying on the ground. And somebody had piggybacked in behind somebody who had a badge and hot-wired his Corvette and driven off in the space of like two minutes. And he said, you know, even if they find it, I don't know if I want it back, because it's never going to be quite the same. Maybe I just want my insurance money and, and to move on. And I thought, isn't that sad? You know, even if you get it back, it wouldn't be quite the same. You'd always have the memory of that. Well, that's a really good picture of this. No matter what justice brings to bear, 
there's no real satisfaction. It might balance the scales. We might say, hey, that's good that justice was done. But think about this. If somebody came into your life and they harmed or killed somebody that was very dear to you or even just stole your Corvette, and the most that human justice could bring to bear was brought to that person, and they went through a legal process, and they were condemned to die, and they died, you would still have lost that thing or that person that was so precious to you, right? Justice would be done, but there would be no satisfaction on your side. You could have the satisfaction of knowing that justice would done, but there would still be this huge loss, right? And that's the nature of human justice. The nature of human justice is that there is no, nothing past a balance. Because this is what's so extraordinary about the cross. God's justice is not merely matched, it's satisfied. Okay, there's a word here that he, Paul could have used. The word you could have used is the word expiation. Expiation means you could, you could purge somebody's record of something, right? It's like bleach applied to something. You could scrub it clean. You could scrub your record clean. You know what? Christ does bring expiation. Our justification says our record is clean before God. But there's something more here. Christ's death is displayed as a propitiation. It's a soothing aroma before God. It satisfied God's wrath. Now, imagine this. It's so extraordinary. Paul, or Paul says that on the cross, Christ, as our redemption, is in our place, just as our Passover lamb. And the full weight of God's wrath is brought to bear for all of his people's sins on the cross. And God's justice is not merely negated, but it's satisfied. That does not mean that all things that will ever happen to you are satisfied. It does mean that the greatest crime in history, which is our rebellion against the one who we should glorify with every inch of our being, is perfectly satisfied. Think about that for a moment. God's justice doesn't just merely go home and say, well, that was done. God's justice is satisfied. There's nothing left except for Christ by his own righteous power to say, I'm coming back. This is the nature of the redemption that we have. This is the nature of the adoption that is there for us so that now as we are in Christ, all that God looks at Christ and sees is his beloved son. And when he looks at us, he sees his beloved son. And God doesn't carry around as we would this haunting memory of evil against us. But no, his justice is satisfied. It's completely absorbed in Christ's work for us. It's a stunning work that Christ does for us and something that we could never do. Think about the difference between what happens for everyone who's not in Christ Forever in eternity, they experience God's wrath against them in hell, right? And it's forever because it's an infinite offense and the, the punishment goes on infinitely. But for us, there's infinite blessing because in Christ, God's justice is completely satisfied. What could do this? What could bring about this costly redemption? Notice it's by his blood. 
by his blood. Chris mentioned this at length in our communion service last week, but in case you weren't there, turn over to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17.11 explains this idea of blood. It says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This is really important because there have been, at times, people who have said, Oh, there's something about the blood of Jesus itself, like the liquid, red, viscous stuff that's important. No, blood in the Bible is shorthand for death for substitutionary sacrificial death. And this verse makes that clear. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The sacrificial system is a picture of that. The life that is let out on the altar is a picture of the life that is given up by Christ for us. It's his death on the cross and only his death on the cross that can satisfy this. It's, it's his death and then his resurrection that makes this propitiation. That's why I love communion. We get to remember together the, the shocking cost of our redemption. I don't know what you do in communion, but I try to, and this is just me, it's, it's something that I find helpful. When the, when the bread is passed, I try to stop and think for a moment the cost of his body broken for me. And I think that every thing that I have done and I'm, and I'm confessing before Christ, each one of those was such an infinite offense against his holiness that it should have been my body broken. But my body broken would not have satisfied his justice. Right? And then I spend the second half rejoicing when the blood is passed, or the, sorry, when the cup is passed to remember his blood on our behalf, I spend that rejoicing because it's a new covenant in his blood. And his death not only signifies the propitiation we have, but God's absolute covenant. Remember what the new covenant is? To write his word in our hearts, to set his people apart for him in a way that the Mosaic covenant couldn't do. And I spend that half rejoicing in the propitiation that we've received and God's covenant commitment to his people in Christ to bring them to life and to sustain that life. This costly redemption and the only one who could bring it and God's precious son is put forward as the satisfaction of God's wrath and it's demonstrated to be the satisfaction of his wrath by the resurrection. And it's to be received by faith. There's no other way to receive it. There's no work that could receive it. It's the empty hand of faith that looks to the work that's done and says... I trust in that. Now notice something else I'd like to point out to you here. Notice that all of these words are actual, not potential. This is redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He has been put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The only thing that hasn't happened is that you may or may not have responded yet to God's command to believe in faith. But God's work is done. His redemption is done. The price of your redemption is paid. He surely will save all those whom he has saved. There is no way that God could put forward his son as a propitiation for sin 
and not be satisfied by it. All those who are in Christ, he will save. That is such an encouragement. When we talk about missions tonight, we talk about people going in the missions field. How could you possibly go and tell a hostile world dominated by service to the devil, even though they don't know it, but Roman, or Ephesians 2 says our, our world system is dominated by the devil. How could you possibly go and declare the glory of God to a hostile world around you and say, Christ is great, Christ is king. You need to recognize that you are absolutely, all these things we've said through Romans 3, you are this bad. You are Romans 3 bad. You're not just Genesis 3 bad, but you are Romans 3 bad. You are a hostile enemy of God, and yet we call you to turn and obey Christ. We have confidence. When he calls his own, his own will respond. The price is paid. Christ is the victor. Now, the purpose of this extraordinary propitiation, it's to show God's righteousness. Again, notice how much the emphasis is on our God and his action here. It's to show God's righteousness. This extraordinary propitiation is to demonstrate God's righteousness. Why? What was in question about God's righteousness, if you could say it that way? Well, two things are in question. First of all, how could there possibly have been someone like Abraham? How could there have possibly been, been somebody in the entirety of human history up to this point who isn't dead right away? And how could there be possibly ones whom God has said, oh, those are my people. That one was my righteous servant. How could there have been a Moses? If, if we're really Romans 3 bad, how could there have possibly been these people? Well, Paul explains it like this. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Whoa, Paul, what are you saying God passed over former sins? Are you saying you're just undoing all those things you said about there's nobody righteous apart from Christ, there's nobody righteous with, through the law? No, he's saying those people who, who heard the message of the law that they were and, and didn't turn to it to say, I'm going to establish my own righteousness by doing all the sacrifices right and getting my hymn just right. No, those who said, I am broken. I'm going to trust that as you promised from Genesis 3.15 onwards, I was listening to Andrew's message and he, he unfolded the entirety of redemption history onwards. I'm going to trust that you are going to bring someone who's going to crush the head of the snake. I'm going to trust that you are going to save your people. That faith demonstrated by Abraham and, and demonstrated by everyone who is truly God's people throughout history was credited to them as righteousness, but it was credited to them literally like our credit works, for a future payment. And Paul's saying that future payment has arrived. They trusted God would do a work that they did not yet see the end of it, but they trusted God would do a work, and that work was done in Christ. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins of his people who trusted in him from Abraham on, and it's to show his righteousness at the present time. That's for the rest of us. Everything from the cross on. It's to show his righteousness at the present time. Well, why is his righteousness at the present time in question? Because we're not godly. Apart from him, we're not godly. So here's what Paul says that God is. I love this language. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. It's just and the justifier. I, I, I like to think of this as a bookend on something else. Do you remember when Paul or when Moses goes up on the mountain and says, show me your glory? We talked about this last week in, in uh, Chris's sermon because he was talking about Elijah being up on Mount Sinai. He says, show me your glory. And God declares to him his glory. 
the Lord, the Lord, right? The one who's righteous. He's righteous, he's forgiving, but he will surely not forget the sins of the wicked. How can he be just and the justifier? Because he's the one who put forward Christ as the propitiation of our righteousness. He's the one who is a perfectly holy judge and the one who can at the same time say, these ones in Christ have been purchased by his redemption and they are just before me. So our salvation is all of Christ. It begins with God's justice revealed. It's given by God's justice revealed as a gift. It's purchased by Christ's propitiatory death. It declares God's justice to a watching world. And it seals God's justice as we turn to Christ. So several implications that Paul prepares us for chapter 4. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded, verse 27. By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The first implication of God's righteousness revealed is the silencing of human pride. The only path towards salvation is one of absolute humble dependence. This has been Paul's argument all along, but I think it's worth us stopping and, and, and considering for just a moment. Is there anything in your heart when you think about your relationship with Christ that you say, oh yeah, I did that. I doubt that there is, but if there is anything in your heart that says that, flee from that. You cannot turn to Christ with anything but humble faith. I told you before that when I, when I finally came to this point, it was... I think the point of my true conversion when I said, there's nothing, and despair, there's nothing that I could turn to God and say, save me. You're right. When you get to that point, when there's nothing, there's, there's only despair. There's no possible reason that you could turn and ask for his grace. You have understood grace. For the sake of your name, O oh Lord, would you save me? What's become of our boasting? It's excluded. What's left? Worship. We get to sing Rock of Ages. Naked I come to thee for dress. Second implication. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of, God, of Gentiles also, since God is one. This begins our exploration in chapter 4 of God's work from Abraham on. How is Abraham a blessing for the world? In this way. The entire world is justified by this one action because the law promises and prepares for the work but it isn't the work that's done. God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The entirety of the law was preparatory. The entirety of Israel's national life is preparatory. It's this great blessing and yet the playing field is level because there is one means by which both Israelites and non-Israelites are going to be justified. There's only one means. It's in, it's in Christ. So the playing field is level. So then Paul's going to say, well, what was the point? Why do we need Abraham? What was the point of all that has come before? Well, that's what chapter 4 is for. And then I think this last question is probably one that he received all the time when he was going around uh, and preaching in the synagogues 
He's saying, whoa, 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 Paul. Are you overthrowing the law? Are you saying there was no point to the law? Are you saying that everything that came before this was pointless? Because by no means, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. How is it that this upholds the law? Well, again, we'll have to see as we move through the rest of Romans. But Paul is here saying that Christ is the most perfect prepared sacrifice that was, that was ever there. So let's turn to uh, Hebrews as we finish. And I want to be done a little early so you can go get seats uh, for our Gospel Hope send-off. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. That word pleasure right there, that's the same idea of propitiation. right? Those, those sacrifices were preparatory, but they weren't propitiatory. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And say, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have take, you have taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. But notice that. It establishes the second. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We'll stop there, but you see the difference. To overthrow the law, he would say, oh no, nobody's, there's a whole new system. He's saying, no, no. The law promised that one day there would be an end to it, an end to sacrifice, an end to God's work. And Christ is the end of that work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work on our behalf. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would meditate on the work that Christ has done for us through this week and that his name would be glorified. Amen.